Welcome to Full Comment. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm guest host Rex Murphy, and with me today, and uh, it's an exultation for me, is the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. F small note, if you're listening to this as a podcast, I want to let you know there will also be an extended video version of this conversation available for you to watch online as well on Tuesday, December 20th at nationalpost.com. So if that's in your interest, turn it on and be edified. Now then, I want to welcome with probably more than the normal exuberance that one welcomes a guest, the fresh premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith. Daniel, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Well, it's my pleasure, Rex. I've, I've always appreciated how much you support our province, and I'm so delighted to be able to talk to you about it. Before we get into, and this will only be brief, before we get into all of the many issues that are there, just a little personal note. Uh, you didn't get to the Premier's job by a simple straight line, but you did get to it. What, what, was, the, the, what was the personal feeling having worked so long? And now you're in that high chair in one of the most controversial provinces, or the province probably under the most pressure in many ways. What's it like to finally have the chair in which you can offer at least some of the direction? There have been a couple of key moments where I've said, my gosh, I've been waiting all my life to do this <laughs> and to be able to give direction on the parameters to develop the budget, to be able to really finally start addressing the issues in healthcare. It's funny when you've been on the outside talking about all the things that, that need to change, and I've done that in so many different roles in so many different ways, it's, it's really gratifying to be able to, to make some decisions and start seeing some action. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty gratified. Well, here's what I'd, I'd like to do this in a certain kind of way. I, I've had the very, very good luck, and part of it wasn't luck, incidentally. These questions are going to be fairly, not they're going to be long. I was around when Alberta had its boom, and when so many of the guys and women in Newfoundland after the collapse of the fisheries, and that was a desperate time, desperate unemployment, it really was anxiety at the highest levels. And almost suddenly, you know, there was this other province way out west was having something of a boom. And it was like a providence had interceded. And despite the roughness of the Newfoundland clan, of which I'm a really good example, Twenty to 30,000 of our guys and girls ended up in various parts of Alberta in the fields themselves or in ancillary industries or tarring roofs or getting into the rigs themselves. I thought that was a rather wonderful moment in Confederation, that when one province had hit bottom and simultaneously another was having one of those wonderful moments, that Alberta gave such easy access and, by the way, improved so many lives, because otherwise down here it would have been depression and breakups of marriage. Jobs suddenly became available at a level of salary in some cases that many of my cohorts didn't know. So give me a little play of what it was like at that time. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned that because I remember hearing one of the stories that you told of a personal friend. And I think you, you, you did say that we saved a lot of lives and a yeah, lot of hope for a lot did. of people by being able to offer good paying jobs at a time when it seemed so down and gloomy. And, and it's nice to be able to see so many people learn about how our industry works and get good paying jobs in it. And now, of course, Newfoundland and Labrador has its own 
oil and, and gas industry that they've been able to develop. And so that, that to me has been just such a wonderful partnership between El, Alberta and, and Newfoundland and Labrador and the rest of the, of the country too, that there always has been an opportunity when we are in our boom, we reach out, we call it now our Alberta is calling campaign and say, come and help us build this place. And I, I think that really is one of the best things about Confederation. It was, it was also remarkable because I can think of other provinces where this didn't apply. It was very remarkable how fluent and how hospitable, how easy. When you get a boom uh, in a given province, the idea normally is, you know, we must take care of our own first. And if there is a great wave, even if it's within the Canadian citizenry, but if there's another great wave from other provinces, there's usually a great deal of friction. But I know this particular file very well. I've been out there a lot and I'm home a lot. It was so wonderful, the friendships that were made, the ease in which these news people could come in, and by the way, I'll, I'll give you this, Newfoundlanders are, are almost toxically patriotic to their own piece of land. Newfoundland is in their, in their souls, in their shoes, in their head, and they could never think of going to another province. Well, once they got out to Alberta, half of these little buggers decided to stay there. Now, it was a great thing that one part of the country could see another part of the country. This is an unsaid element in kind of maintaining the confederation at the citizen level. You agree? Oh, it absolutely is. And, you know, we want to facilitate that. I, I've always been amazed with Fort McMurray when we start seeing that they do direct flights to other parts of the country to make sure that even though people do come out here to be able to, to work, make some money so that they can raise their family, that there's an ease of them being able to also stay and return home to family and, and their yeah. home communities. And I, I think that that's... That's part of it is I, I, the only time that you, you get people feeling pretty grumpy is when you end up with a downturn in the economy. Yeah. But when we're booming, we want everybody to, to take part in that. And I, I think that that's maybe some of the frustration that Alberta has had is that we are so welcoming. It's a place where you can come here, you can move your family, you can stay for a short time or a long time, but you can build a business. And we want everybody to assist us in this, in this project of building out Alberta. And I, I sometimes, I sometimes feel that we're, we're, we're taken for granted. Oftentimes, feel like we're taken for granted. Uh, if you forgive me, uh, you're the premier. And I'm just the, the idiot looker on. It's not the matter of Alberta being taken for granted. In the last six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, I certainly have absorbed this. Uh, observed this. The environmental organizations, international organizations. NGOs and protest groups within Canada, the environmental movement, and the central policy of the current federal government, they're not taking Alberta for granted. It looks like an almost active effort to put Alberta on, on the very dark side of the sheet to demonize its principal resort. I, I'm speaking for me only. I cannot think of another province uh, whose main dynamic, whose main industry especially after the generosity during the boom, has been so targeted as being the source of, oh, either planetary destruction or your, your ferrying dirty oil to Quebec or Fort McMurray, as Neil, Mc, Neil Young said, is Hiroshima. There has been a sustained, negative, harsh, and mean campaign against this province. Now, will you agree with my assessment of that? And if you do... What damage has it done both to your economy and also uh, to the temperament of Albertans? 
it, it has been deliberate. And I, I did, I spent some time investigating where it came from. And it's, uh, you've probably written about it before. It was this 2008, they called it, and I'll put it in the air quotes, Tar Sands Campaign yeah. by Corporate Ethics, supported by Tides Foundation and all their other fellow travelers, where literally tens of millions of dollars flowed into our country to demonize the, the oil sands. And they did, they did it deliberately. Because yes, they did. Uh, the, when you look at their strategy document, they had already had success in demonizing coal. And the conversation was, well, we're going to see an increase in CO2 emissions because of transportation fuels driven by the um, America mostly. Where does America get its, its principal product from? And they looked at Saudi Arabia and they looked at Canada. And uh, we were such an easy target. And so they said, well, let's see if we can choke off the supply in Canada as a way of reducing emissions in America on transportation. The, th the thing that is so remarkable about it is they they succeeded in landlocking our resource in so many ways and yet then you ended up with the drilling and pipeline boom in america and now they've become a net exporter of of oil and natural gas and so i would say the entire strategy was a failure started with a very flawed premise but we're the ones who are suffering the consequences of it the fact that they have spent a relentless amount of time since 2008 unfairly demonizing an, an industry that provides not only so many jobs for us and for the rest of the country, but also so much revenue for our province and for the rest of the country as well. And that's part of what we're now having to okay. push back against it because it hasn't stopped. It's continued. No, 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 it hasn't stopped. I'd like to jump in and add one more factor during that particular period. Yeah, they did shut off all possible ways of getting uh, pipelines that would let your product go to bigger markets. Uh, the campaign against the pipelines was, was almost hysterical. But you, it also has to be placed in this context. The context was that you did have a boom, but then people, it elides in their memory. There was a sudden and precipitous drop in the world price of oil. Suddenly oil was no longer there. Then you had, if that wasn't bad enough, you had that raging, uh, almost biblical inferno in Fort McMurray. Mm -hmm. And if that wasn't enough, most people don't know this, I, I went out after the fire, and then I learned that they'd also had a flood. And in the meantime, Alberta's oil had dropped. The offices were, uh, main offices in downtown Toronto, Calgary were being emptied. It was in the context of all of that, that then on, on, on the heap of the pile of miseries you were going through, you had the federal government, you had the environmentalists, you had British Columbia, you had Quebec saying, oh, we cannot have east-west. We cannot have pipelines taking this fuel to the United States for other markets. It seemed to me they jumped on Alberta at the hardest possible moment. They did jump on us at the hardest possible moment. When you, when you think about what happened in 2014, because that was the last time I was in politics, there was a major reversal in our fortunes that happened because of new technology, horizontal multi-stage yes, fracking that opened exactly. up all the shale oil and shale gas in the US. And so we ended up with a, a triple whammy. Not only did conventional oil decline and, uh, and natural gas decline, but also our, 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 the value of our bitumen also declined, especially when you get landlocked. It means that we end up with bottlenecks. And so if you've got too big a, a glut of supply happening on this end and no place to get it to market, we ended up seeing a, a massive undersale and underpricing of our resources here, which lasted for eight years. We, we only just began to see the recovery in prices over the over the yep. course of the last year. And so we have seen that to, over the period of the previous government, 
there were 180,000 jobs lost. We ended up with six consecutive quarters of people leaving our province to go seek jobs elsewhere. Yeah. Former energy minister said, well, you may as well go to BC for a while and wait this out because that's where the jobs are. We saw a decline in, in venture capital. We saw a decline in consumer confidence. Everything, uh, the, the, the number of stories of hardship, because I was on the radio at the time for six years. I still remember one guy calling in just before uh, Christmas talking about how he was going to have to... Oh, sorry, Rex. Take your time. There's no rush. We have plenty of occasion to delay. No rush. No, it was like that, if I can interrupt for just a second, when I covered the collapse of the fishery. Let me just give you this as a break. I went to the northeast coast, and I met a man who had, I think, six or seven children, third-generation fisherman in his great-grandfather's house. And here's the city. I'm not, making, I'm not elaborating it. He had to sell his house for nothing, because at that point, who wanted it? to buy tickets for seven people in his family to go to Hamilton to try to get a job. And yep. he put his head, he's a strong, strong man, he put his head on the kitchen table and he cried. So when, uh, that's a good thing. When people lose jobs, those people who continually have those jobs have no idea of what it means in terms of emotion, in terms of family, and in terms of personal dignity. Anyway, That's I interrupted so you. Well, thank you. So what I was trying to say before I lost composure was just one person calling in talking about how he was going to have to lay off his entire staff just before Christmas. And, you know, I think, I think that is what is missing, is that <clears throat> when you have these campaigns yes. against the industry, yes. that I think that there's this sense that it's, there's some almost political theater about it from the point of view of the environmental groups that are pushing it forward. And you see the worst of it now with the Extinction Rebellion yep. and how they're yeah. gluing themselves to the headquarters and to streetcars and to the streets. And on the other end of that are people who are having to make really tough decisions about whether their business stays in operation. And really tough decisions when somebody loses their job about whether they stay in the industry at all or whether they have to get retrained for something else or whether they have to move. And so that's kind of what Alberta has been living for you know, since the, since 2014. And so we're now on the cusp of turning around and we've got this hostile federal government that is coming through with policy after policy after policy pronouncement. While we've been in this middle, the middle of this, of this leadership race, talking about everything from bringing in specialized emissions caps for our oil and gas industry, specialized emissions caps on fertilizer, um, having uh, new protected land areas that's going to be federally led, telling us we can't hook up any natural gas power plants to our electricity grid. And, and this is what is, what is happening from our perspective is that we're at a point now where we can turn around, we can be a solution to the world for energy security and energy affordability and do it in the most environmentally sustainable way possible. And we've got a federal government that isn't a partner, that's doing everything they possibly can well, no, no. to try to continue to crush the industry. And it, it, people will see this as a partisan comment, but it's not, it's a comment of fact. The central policy of the current liberal government is the green agenda, is net zero, is phasing out oil and gas. What net zero is, it's a phrase that must be translated. Net zero means, if it means anything at all, that we are looking to the day when we do not have any oil and gas industry. 
The central, the central policy of the current federal government is a policy, in my view, I'll get your views on it in a minute. In my view, it has to be, it is the direct contradiction of the existence of an oil and gas industry in this country, and in particular, in particular, shutting down. We can't do it tomorrow, as the famous prime minister once mm. said. The ultimate result of net zero is that Alberta and any of the, the, the neighboring provinces who have some oil and gas as well, that there will not be an industry. Now, do you think I'm overstating that? Or do we have a federal government that has as its central policy a policy that is in direct contradiction and working towards the nullification of the central industry of a province, namely yours? I think that's where they started. For sure, that's where they started. Um, and I don't even think that the prime minister has really been even, um, uh, I mean, he's been very forthright about that, saying we can't phase them out eventually, but we are now, but we can phase them out eventually. Yeah. The, the very fact that after we did an, an equalization referendum here, where we got 62% support from our people to engage in a new conversation with the federal government about how we might eliminate equalization, that was a proxy vote to saying we want a new relationship with the rest of, the can of Canada. For, for their response just days later to be to, uh, to put someone in place like Stephen Gibault, who made his, his reputation scaling the CN Tower to, to show his objection to oil and natural gas. You know, the, one of the first things he did, because I was in business lobbying at the time, one of the first things he did was start what he called a just transition consultation. And that's the language that was used before to just transition coal workers completely out of the business. So th there is no question that that is ultimately what they what they had in mind. But th there's a problem that they face. The problem being that the world needs a, a reliable supply of secure energy that comes from oil and natural gas. We will continue our conversation with Daniel Smith in just a moment. We have a, a strange uh, a disturbed and a very anxious world. We know that in Europe and Russia that oil and gas are more than oil and gas. Uh, they are the leverage of considerable military power, most of it being exercised negatively. We know also that after the overspending during COVID and the misdirected spending in some cases over COVID has brought in rampant inflation, you've seen seven rises in the bank interest rates we know that people, and these are the ones that are always, always on the outside edge. People who have truly low incomes, the 30000 the 20000 or on some fixed income. I was home in Newfoundland just a couple of weeks ago, and they're making that little juggle, what will I pay for this month, as opposed to what I used to be able to pay for. Do you think, Danielle, and this is a straight question, that the combination of all these forces, should it get worse? And should finally reality start to bite? Uh, we've been comfortable up to now, but reality start to bite and we start to face some hard times that the federal people in particular, and maybe some of the environmentalists will realize that the projects they are pushing, especially at this moment with inflation, with world anxiety, with food prices rising, with poor people not able to make it, that, you know something, we've been on the wrong path. Let's go back to what we know. Let's, for the first time, give some thanks that we have the institutions, we have the technology, we have the governments that can supply the key resource of every province and country energy and change it overnight. Can that happen without hard times? 
we're already seeing the hard times. Oh, harder and, times. Uh, you know, every time interest rate goes up, it just it, it, it strikes some pain in my heart because I remember my parents telling me the stories of double-digit uh, interest rates. I was there. Interest rates going up to 21%. It isn't remarkable. mortgages. All of that happened under the, pro under the previous Trudeau as well. I mean, is it any surprise that we're seeing the same thing? If you have the same bad policies that result in the same bad outcomes, this is the very definition of insanity that we're doing this over again. But when people see their interest rates double or triple on their mortgages, that's when people are, are going to have, have difficulty being able to maintain their homes. So there is the, the real danger that as these, if we don't get inflation under control and we start seeing interest rates go up, that is going to cause okay. much more hardship. That's what I worry about because that is sort of the foundation for families is having that secure home base and also the foundation for wealth creation. And, the one, and unfortunately, the environment we're in has put all of that at risk. The one, the one thing that you have done uh, since you assumed the office of premier that seems to have greatly distressed uh, some of the finer intellects and uh, obviously most sensitive observers over in Ottawa and in Toronto and to some degree Montreal is that you brought up something called the Sovereignty Act. And in fact, if I can say so, I will say so, some of the more public people, you know, people you regard think have manners, uh, have actually used some really nasty and insulting things that should not be, by the way, put in public in terms of an argument. A, First for you, what is the core ambition? I don't want all the detail. What's the core ambition or the core drive behind the Sovereignty Act? And second, why do you think it's getting such a, a, a puny, hostile, and dismissive response uh, from what I call the high forwards of all excited and progressive thought in central Canada? Well, the principal purpose is to put up a shield and to tell Ottawa, Stop doing this. Stop passing laws that you have no right to pass that violate the Constitution. Stop passing laws that target our industry. Stop passing laws that target our industry only. We're not going to let you do it any longer. That's the principle, the, the principal purpose behind it, is to restart that conversation about how our country is supposed to work and to call them out for the fact that they are uh, targeting our particular industry for destruction. And we're, we're, we're just not going to sit back and let that happen. So that would be the, the main issue. I think the other... You know, the, uh, I'm not sure why it is that the, the rest of the country has, has passively sat back and allowed Ottawa to treat one province this way. That's a good I, question. I, I feel like if anyone else had been treated this way, there would be a supportive columns in the, in the newspapers and in the Toronto Star and, and the Globe and Mail and elsewhere. And, and instead, it, it, us just saying, hey, look, we, we just want to be treated fairly and treated is, like Quebec, and Ottawa needs to stay in its own lane. But is the, it, the kind of reaction's been outrageous. But is, is, it, is it because, and be blunt, oh, well, you know, you're not sophisticated. You're Albertans. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, we had, I can do this personally. In Newfoundland in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, we, we were the, the second Polish jokes. I mean, Newfoundland, just a bunch of hillbillies on the North Atlantic. There's something in the air, in the academic air, and some of the journalistic air. Well, if it's Alberta, I mean, after all, what kind of hors d'oeuvre can you get out there? Is it class? Hmm. I, I would hope not. I mean, I, I, have, I have two very strong, confident, successful women who are leading my effort on the environment. Sonia Savage is a, a sophisticated environmental lawyer who worked in one of the biggest companies that we have in, a, in, in Canada, Enbridge Pipelines. 
uh, Kasia Paquette was came from is, who's her deputy minister came from the world of international finance. She she's been talking about how we develop proper metrics around environmental, social, and governance issues so we can continue to attract billions of dollars worth of investment. The, 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 those are the two that led my delegation to COP27. We have very sophisticated individuals in um, in senior positions that are prepared to have a, a conversation about this in a in a way that I, I think is going to benefit the entire country. And, and we shouldn't be treated um, in in that dismissive way. It's it's offensive that it we is would be treated in, in, in such a dismissive way. This is a this is the second last. This is the tag, but it's not a small tag. It was one thing. For the, I call them the, the green zealots, the, the absolutely loony green zealots gluing themselves to paintings. It was one thing to go after all the gas. And now we have the Trudeau administration there a couple of months back saying, essentially, uh, I think now we should get into farming and we should cut down uh, access to, I'll use the easy term, fertilizer to 30. What in the... <laughs> Where do these people get these ideas that industries that are working at agriculture and energy are the basic and that you're now going to play some stupid experiment with farmers to satisfy this, this, this manic theory that the world ends in the year 2100? Can't they leave farmers alone? I think that, well, the nice part about that is that they've now certainly lit a fire under Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, because in point of fact, he beat me to his version of a sovereignty act. He called it the Saskatchewan First Act. Good for him. And he also was really strong in, in pushing back. Well, 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 remember this, because while they were coming through with these offensive public pronouncements, we were in the middle of a leadership race in our province. We didn't even have a voice to be able to defend against that. And so Scott Moe stood up and, and bless him that he did and said, we're not just we're just not going to do it. We're not going to allow for the federal government to have a, a, an emissions cap on fertilizer, which would be a de facto production cap, which would reduce food production. We're not going to allow federal agents to come onto private property yeah, and start testing that. the water for nitrogen levels. We'll charge them with trespassing. So I've been I've been greatly inspired by by seeing what Scott Moe has done. And I think more provinces will have to work together to, to push back against that. But the, where did the bad ideas come from? I think you have, I, I think the prime minister, when he got elected, do you remember one of the first things he did was went to the UN and said, we're back. Yeah, I know. And, and, and I think what it is, is it, for, some, for some reason, he just wants to be seen as, as I, I don't know if it, there's some in club that he wants to be able to get some kudos and credit in, but it's like he takes all of the worst and most extreme environmental ideas and brings them back for showcase in Canada. This one on the fertilizer in particular, it's happening in the Netherlands. Yep, 3,000 farms are going to be just taken off. the. This is insane. You know that. It is insane. And I think that's what we have to understand is that, the, the, the federal government begins with a premise that seems perfectly reasonable. Oh, well, of course, we don't want to see nitrogen going into our water because we're, we're applying excess fertilizer and it's going to impact our water systems. Okay, that seems very reasonable, but it's not occurring in Western Canada. In Western Canada, we do precision application of all of our farm inputs because it costs money. Nobody wants to put an excess amount of chemicals on their field because they want to be able to produce food with the most efficient way possible. And so they're applying things that are happening internationally to an environment that, that, that is a construct here. And they're doing it in a way that is going to result in food insecurity and it's going to result in a decline in food production. Here, here's, here's a wrap up thought. 
the very bureaucrats, uh, light-minded politicians who have had no direct experience, who haven't worked in these, haven't worked in oil and gas, have not been farmers, are not familiar with the entire complex arrangement of forces, circumstances, finance, equipment, the, 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 the tremendous complexity of keeping those two industries going. They know nothing of them. They know as much about mm -hmm. that as I know about Fermat's last theorem. And they're passing laws in Ottawa on an industry that, in two industries, they really have no acquaintance with except on paper, and are willing to take that kind of huge gamble and assume that as, as soon as they issue the edict, well, you second-tier premiers are going to have to accept it. And that's me, Randy. Before we make a conclusion, here's the best way to bring this, by May, uh, to an end. No question to you. You've been in the office now for some months. You've had a long experience, so there's a lot behind it. Give yourself some time to give a bit of concentration. Just tell me in, in under two or three minutes the two or three things that are of most concern to you and your province or a message that you would most like received outside of your province in Ottawa or to the general media, whatever it is you wish to say. Well, the, the main thing I would say is that when Alberta does well, the rest of the country does well. And people should be cheering us along. People should be cheering us along knowing that we have got an industry that they can be proud of, that is at the forefront of technology in developing the best ways to develop our resources, that it's environmentally responsible, and that we can provide energy security, not only to our, our friends in the rest of the country, but also our allies internationally. And we can provide affordable energy as well, so that people aren't faced with these kinds of really difficult decisions every time, especially when we get into, into winter, of how, how, to, uh, how to manage all of the, the, the rising costs associated with energy. Alberta is the solution to so many of these problems. And all we really want is to be left alone is to allow for some benefit of the doubt that we care about the environment, yes. we care about the planet. If you come to this beautiful province, you will find that our principal city for investment, Calgary, is located right near the mountains so people can hike and go outdoors and ski and enjoy the beautiful environment that we have here. You don't have to scratch the surface of an Albertan very deep to see an incredible love of the outdoors and the environment yeah. and hunting and conservation and, and being able to preserve all of that. And I'm not quite sure why it is that people don't believe and don't understand that those two things go together. Yeah. That we want to be responsible. We want to be a contributor to Confederation, but we're not going to put up with, with this any longer. We're not going to put up with the rest of the country saying, keep on giving through equalization and other transfers. And we're, we're going to systematically work on shutting your industry down. That, that's not on. Okay. We're, we're going to, to make sure that we develop our industry and do it in a way that addresses the environmental concerns so people have confidence. But, but Ottawa isn't going to dictate our policies anymore. Premier Smith, uh, A, <clears throat> it was generous to sacrifice something of a splendid Alberta Saturday <laughs> to talk to this poor fool over here. I much appreciate the courtesy that you give us. And I can also wish you, and wish you personally and sincerely, that some of the calamities and some of the restrictions that have been placed on, I think, as I've said early on, a very giving province are finally lifted, and you get at least a fair chance to operate as every other province. So thank you, 
very much. You know, Rex, maybe I should say one more thing because Alberta is calling again because we are going to boom. Um, and we're going to boom on all fronts, on all sectors. And this is one of the most welcoming places on the planet. And we want people to come here. And if uh, things aren't working out in your home province and, you don't ha and you're facing unemployment, you want to look for an opportunity, this is the place to do it. Um, and so I hope more people will come here and see all the reasons why I love this place so much and, um, and hopefully develop some of the same appreciation that, that you have for our province. You've been such a great champion for us and I appreciate that. I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow morning. <laughs> Thank you again to the Premier you. of Alberta for submitting to this long hour on a Saturday morning. It was very, very good to have, have her here and to hear from her the central challenges of the provinces of Alberta, of the province of Alberta. After, remember, uh, this will be available in an extended version online Tuesday the 20th at nationalpost.com. So if you want to see the extended version, it's Tuesday, 20th, nationalpost.com. Give it a chance. Full comment is a post-media podcast. I'm guest host Rex Murphy. The episode produced, Andrew Prue. Theme music, Bryce Hall. Kevin Libben is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon Music, and you can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices, whatever they are. And you can help us by giving us a rating or leaving a review and telling your friends about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>